When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps. On the first half of this episode, we discussed State and Maine, David Mamet's antic black comedy about a hapless director trying to make a film while everything around him is falling apart. Or possibly it's a film about a put-upon screenwriter who's just looking for a second chance. Or maybe it's a movie about a creepy sex offender of a leading man who discovers he can count on his bosses to bail him out of any trouble. It's up for debate, really. But Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a lot more specific. It's another black comedy with an ensemble cast full of famous faces, but this one is more clearly the story of Mildred, played by Frances McDormand, and how she takes on the establishment in her small town, trying to get the police department to properly address the rape and murder of her daughter seven months ago. Martin McDonough came to cinema from the stage, where he originally wrote plays about Ireland and his family roots. And his film scripts tend to read like opened-up stage plays. They're crammed with characters, full of speeches, prone to dramatic plot turns, and often fixed in specific spaces that feel like stage sets, as his characters fence and banter with each other. Like David Mamet, he gravitates towards stories about mouthy, nervy criminals. His first film, In Bruges, was about a hitman in exile after a terrible error in judgment. And he followed up with Seven Psychopaths, a messy, dark comedy in the vein of early Quentin Tarantino about a screenwriter who gets involved with a series of assassins and murderers after he solicits their stories for a piece he's writing and after his friends kidnap the wrong dog. So Three Billboards feels like a pretty remarkable departure. It's about a bitterly independent woman who decides the best way to get the police to investigate her daughter's murder is to rent three billboards outside of town and post an accusation against the local police chief, Bill Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson. Initially, the story seems like an Aaron Brockovich kind of tale about a woman taking on the establishment, and especially taking on the incompetent, violent, racist cop played by Sam Rockwell. But then McDonough reveals something surprising about Willoughby and takes the story in a new direction. And suddenly, it's an ensemble story about how the town responds, how Rockwell's character tries to grow up, and how everybody seems to have some kind of stake in a struggle Mildred thought was hers alone. You read Welby? Yes, ma'am. I'm going to help you. I hear those three billboards out on Drinkwater Road. Here's 5000 for the first month, and here's what the billboards ought to say. I guess you're Angela Hayes' mother. That's right. I'm Angela Hayes' mother. Sunshine beating on a good time. So, Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. Hey, you. What is this? 
Advertising, I guess. Advertising what? Something obscure? I'll say. I don't think those billboards is very fair. Time it took you to get out here. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. We've had complaints about those billboards. From who? The lady with a funny eye and a fat menace. Jesus Christ. The town is dead set against these billboards. Took a poll, did you find? Go, girl. It's like we get a war on our hands. You take me down to arrest me. I got nothing to arrest you for. Not yet, you ain't. You know who threw that can? What can? How about you, sweetheart? Ain't life crazy? All this anger, man, just begets greater anger. This time, the chick ain't losing. So what did you guys think of Three Billboards? I loved it. I was thoroughly enamored of this movie, in part because it sort of subverts elements of a type of movie I generally do not like, which is the revenge movie. And I think that this movie has a lot of really interesting observations about the nature of revenge and anger, specifically, that I I really responded to as someone who kind of has a difficult time with the way those things are often portrayed on film. Um, I just thought it was a, a really smart and funny and insightful film. I really liked it a lot. Lot. Yeah, I, I did too, and and I, I kind of led with my criticisms of State and Maine with with the score, which which I think made it a, perhaps a, a winkier, less substantial film than than it could have been otherwise. Where Carter Burwell's score in this is one of his best, and that's that's not you can probably point a finger at a lot of scores and say that about, but I think the black comedy and the dialogue in this is so sharp and with something that was a little less majestic and sad backing it up, this film would probably read as a little stagier and, you know, written unnatural. Um, and I think this, that grounds it so beautifully and it's, it's part of what makes this film work really well. I liked it a lot too, though. It isn't really sticking to the ribs as much as I thought it would. I, I've seen it twice now. I saw it in Toronto and then I saw it uh, recently for the, the show. And I just, I, I don't know, there's something, missing there and i can't know what it is i think I, I i have trouble engaging with the film past its surface extraordinary cleverness which is fine the joy for me watching this film is the musicality of the dialogue and the really excellent performances by the people delivering that dialogue francis mcdormand of course and and uh woody harrelson i think is a really that's a great performance and a great character and sam rockwell to a degree as well but as far as its observations about small town life and about revenge and I, I just I didn't feel like a, a film of great depth but I can be talked into it so maybe, maybe you all can talk me into it I'm not going to talk you into it personally that was sort of the problem I had there are a few moments in this film where I feel like the the cleverness of the dialogue and particularly the attempt to zing people gets ahead of any kind of depth and for me that never manifests more clearly than the speech Francis McDormand gives to the priest who's come to comfort her son, <laughs> Yeah, where McDonough goes off into one of his the personal interests, which is the Catholic Church. You mm-hmm. know, he, he was born in London, but his parents were Irish, and he's he's always been very involved in writing about Ireland, reading about Ireland, telling stories about Ireland, and Ireland and the Catholic Church go very tightly.
completely together. So this is something that he's really concerned with. And he throws in the speech that to me doesn't really belong in this story. And it's very clever. And it's got a, a pretty big laugh line. But at the same time, I was like, this, this isn't this character. This is you. And there were points where I just heard his voice a little too much. I don't know. I, I, I think it is that character because that character is all misplaced anger. Like that's what that character is. Mm. Just like having so much rage and no real place to channel it and she's not a cruel character she's an angry character like i think one of my favorite shots in the early part of the film is when she goes to take out the the billboards and she's in red's office and there's just a little shot of her like looking at an upended beetle on the windowsill and and then she like puts it upright so it can continue on its way and i i think that's just such a lovely little poetic image that is kind of getting across the idea like this is not a fundamentally bad or cruel person she is just really really angry and is taking that anger out in every single direction because there is nowhere else to channel it and about that scene the film kind of leaves it an unanswered question but it's quite possible she's wrong it's quite possible this is a good person who could help her well the, and, and it also kind of parallels the scene with woody harrelson where he tells her that he has cancer and she just she is extraordinarily callous about it because she's very focused on her situation and is not going to be persuaded by somebody who's coming there to give her counsel or to try to talk her into another direction that said i do feel what you're talking about tasha and that and that the specific discussion the about 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 institutional issues within the catholic church it feels a little bit weird, you know, in Missouri, you know what I mean? It's not, this isn't Boston or Ireland, you know, it's not the hotbed of Catholicism. It's just, it, so in that sense, it's, it's sort of shoehorned into this narrative, I guess. Again, I... It's I, a great scene. It's a yeah, funny scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, like, I, I will freely admit that there is a lot of dialogue in this movie that, you know, can probably be best described as writerly you know and it is more about how cleverly something is being said than whether it would actually be realistically said in that mm -hmm. context I, I will definitely concede that but as far as like whether this is something that someone in this part of the country would have an opinion about like i mean the catholic church scandal is and was like huge i mean like people across the country know about that regardless of their religious affiliation and I think you could make the argument that in large swaths of the South uh, where, you know, there are a lot of Christians who maybe look down on Catholicism because of the sort of the history, the schism between certain sects of Christianity and Catholicism. I think that is something that you could read into the, the culture that that character is coming out of. For me, it's just about it's kind of about the lack of specificity in having her give that speech at that time. Like she's facing somebody who's come into her home to comfort her son, which she sees as her job. And to try to ease, like to try to settle the ruffled feathers of the community when what she wants is to ruffle the feathers of the community. I mean, I understand her anger at him. I just I, it feels like it would be expressed in a, you know, get away from my son. Stop covering up for people who are trying to uh, ignore the, the rape and murder of my daughter. Like, what are you doing as a representative of an institution coming in here and with exactly the wrong message? And instead, she delivers this strange speech about Crips and Bloods. <laughs> and the only reason it works for me is because of Frances McDormand. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of places here where the script just didn't work for me. And the movie did as a whole, just because the performances are so good. I, Sam Rockwell 
starts out playing a character who's a kind of a caricature mm-hmm. and he's he's good he's convincing he's entertaining but then you've got people like abby cornish and lucas hedges and peter dinklage and john hawks oh, where's john hawks been right he was that in everything so good. for a year and then he just kind of disappeared for a while and i miss him whenever he turns up he's just so good and Clark Peters, there's just there's so many people in this film that do such an amazing job with with the acting. And for me, it just it kind of comes down to the ability that each of them has in turn to bring across like a humanity and an emotion, because this ends up being a very powerfully emotional film mm-hmm. in spite of some of the the remove of clever writing and in spite of all of the different things going on at once. I guess we we kind of touched on the Catholic Church child molestation thing, but there are a lot of other like really dark, serious topics going on here in terms of of vigilante justice and police brutality and racism and uh, official cover ups. Did the humor around all of these things work for you? It has to for the film to work. <laughs> yeah. you know, if, yeah. if you're if it doesn't, you're you're going to be struggling to appreciate anything about the film because I think if you don't get that sort of sort of bleak take on everything with sort of these glimmers of hope thrown in, uh, it's it's going to be a long slog for you. The glimmers of hope I think are important for all of these characters to have just that little bit of possibility of redemption of a, a certain softness and humanity to everyone in in the movie because uh, i think if it doesn't then it just it becomes too sharp but as it is i think it's well handled i mean i you know i mean as, as much as i'm trying to puzzle over whether the film is a is a film of any real depth it is an absolute pleasure to watch work i mean it works really well i think uh the reason the the dark humor works and the language works is that to me it mirrors the big theme or takeaway of the film which is that hope undercuts anger. We can talk about the final scene where Mildred and Dixon are going to ostensibly enact revenge on this rapist who is not the man who killed Mildred's daughter and they're talking about whether they will in fact kill him and they don't know and I think it's because they've both had such a strong dose of hope at that point like both Dixon and Mildred for had this brief moment where they believed that they had found it and there she has that line about this is the longest I've had hope you know since she died I think that is like kind of the the message of the movie is that, that hope neutralizes anger and I think the language sort of reflects that and if you think of like profanity as being the language of anger but it is presented in such a funny way. I think it mirrors that idea that the anger is being undercut by being combined with this more positive element. I find it hard to see that ending as hopeful, I have to admit. No, I'm not saying that the ending is hopeful. I'm saying that their anger has been neutralized by that brush with hope. But I mean, they're off to do something horrible out of that lingering sense. I mean, I, oh, I don't I think, think they're, they're going to do it. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the question I was going to ask, because I feel like the film very, very strongly suggests that they're not going to do it. Yeah. Mm. And it's critical that we know that, because I think if, it, if it's a different ending uh, where they, they're just hopping in the car and that's what they're going to do, mm-hmm. it completely changes the movie. Um, so it's, it's interesting how something could be that unclear that's so important i think to, to how the movie ultimately lands yeah i mean i love lady or the tiger endings and i like i like the ambiguity here i think it's less interesting if it's it's completely spelled out that they're not actually going to do it because if they're not going to actually do it what are they doing in the car together yeah i think it's played just right yeah and it's also played as characters who have found an unlikely connection uh even under these awful circumstances and there's some hope to be taken away from that 
There's also just the daring of that ending. When the whole thing with Sam Rockwell and the man in the bar comes down, it seems like an unlikely coincidence. And it's a very cinematic coincidence. It's a very mechanical, interesting twist that like in and of itself would be satisfying, I think. But the fact that McDonough then undermines that and goes in a different direction with it is is really interesting to me. And it's just as interesting as what he does with Willoughby, which I was just really not expecting. And up until I realized what was going to happen there, I was enjoying the film for the performances and for the writing. But that was the point where the emotion of it actually grabbed a hold of me. You're referring to how things end for him? Yes. Yeah. Speaking of the mechanics of that film and that scene where uh, Dixon overhears the guy in the bar, how do you guys read the earlier scene where that guy comes into the store and threatens Mildred if he is not the guilty party? What are we meant to take from that? I think there's at least some ambiguity as to whether or not he is the guilty party, despite the DNA evidence. This is someone who was on a secret mission in someplace Sandy. So if anyone can get away with murder, it would be someone like that. Mm. It's also kind of seems consistent with the kind of thing a bad person drifting through town would do for kicks. Mm-hmm. This person is is someone who would would probably get off on that sort of thing, whether he he did the actual crime or not. To me, that whole thing read almost like a commentary on how people interact with women on the internet. Who? I mean, to me, there was just a sense of she's put herself out there. She's expressed an opinion in a public sphere. And he is sniffing around for weakness. Like he knows that he can show up and poke her and that nobody will do anything about it. And he shows up and threatens her in the same way that, you know, speaking as a female critic and somebody who has a lot of female critic friends online and opinion writers and op-ed writers, there are people who show up basically just to say, I'm going to rape and murder you because women have opinions and it threatens them. And that's the kind of person he he comes across as to me, is just this guy who has very obviously deep-seated issues with women. And anything that he sees as a potential weakness, he's going to exploit. And anything he sees as a potential strength angers him and he wants to do something about it. So, I mean, it's a terrifying scene, but I don't think it necessarily speaks to his guilt or innocence. I think it just speaks to a certain kind of gender relation. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was just trying to position it within the logic of the film and the, the best kind of conclusion I came to is if we are to assume that he did commit this crime, but not against Mildred's daughter, that he just saw the billboards and it hit too close to home for him and that's why he comes in calling himself like a friend of chief willoughby or whatever and sort of trying to scare mildred away from something that kind of grazes up against something he knows that he's done but that's a really interesting interpretation that i don't know if i think mcdonough was purposely trying to to evoke but but (laughs) to saying this is what people are like on twitter yeah (laughs) i think it's i just think it's become a familiar dynamic and it's that i'm a friend of chief willoughby thing i think Mm -hmm. is one of the things that that sort of gave me that impression was just how often that kind of hate speech online is triggered from a a stance of you know i'm protecting this thing Mm -hmm. that you've that, that I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, very often it's a celebrity or, you know, when we see it, it's how dare you insult this film? You know, you're a soulless monster and should die. You've never read a Batman comic in your life. <laughs> <laughs> this film also had me thinking about protest and about how protest works and how it can be both 
massively unpopular and hugely effective, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in, in that you know people are irritated because you're in in their face on their Sunday afternoons watching football, or you're driving and there are protesters that are blocking traffic. You see polls in response to protests that are always hugely negative against the protesters, and yet the issue still comes to the forefront and you know this case specifically rises to the top again of uh, Willoughby's to-do list because he's got this crisis now that he has to manage so it's effective so I, th- I thought the film was insightful about the way effective protest works yeah no I think you're right just in terms of uh, I mean that, and that's a way in which the story is really really timely there's a really interesting video series on YouTube called why are you so angry mm-hmm. that's kind of nominally about Gamergate but but is also just about people interacting on the internet in general. And kind of the point of it is analyzing the sociological phenomenon of people getting like insanely riled up by people bringing injustice to their eyes. Mm -hmm. And what it kind of boils down to in the analysis is people don't want to think about things that make them uncomfortable. And when you confront them with things that make them uncomfortable, there is a certain knee-jerk reaction of, why are you making me think about this? Why are you making me think about the fact that cops are shooting unarmed black people in the back and then covering it up and getting away with it? That is not something that makes me happy or comfortable in my life. Why are you forcing me to think about it? And I think you're exactly right. This film deals with that specific dynamic of all of these people who are capable of going through living their comfortable lives because this tragedy doesn't touch them directly. And then something, somebody does something that brings the outside world into their town and makes people see them in a different light and makes them have to think about something they don't want to think about. In a, in a subtle way, too, you kind of have to look at this as, as part of the tradition of post-9-11 films contemplating the nature of revenge. Most explicitly in in the fact that the possible killer served in Afghanistan, which sort of kind of brings it to mind, but also the ending where we either don't know who did this to us or we can't get at who did this to us. So let's go after someone we know who's guilty of something. So there's that element floating through it as well. The film seems like kind of strangely out of time. There's a reference to Google. You know, Sam Rockwell's character has these earbud headphones, but... No one seems to have a cell phone or anything, and there's their Nirvana poster on, on the wall. It's, it's kind of like the story kind of takes place, you know, somewhere in the 21st century that could almost be the 20th century. And I think that's part of what makes it effective as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're going to talk a little more about how both of these films handle anger and revenge and small towns and a bunch of other things. But we can do that in relationship to State and Maine, which takes up some of the same issues. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between State and Maine and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Full blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's, 
Definitely civil rights laws prevents that. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I kind of wanted to start off by talking about the fact that both Mammoth and McDonough started out as playwrights and were well-established, famous playwrights before they really got into screenwriting, let alone direction. And then they both became writer-directors. How do you see that manifesting in the, the work that they create? Well, there's a lot of dialogue in both of them. That's it's all pretty, yes. pretty at, at the at the fore. That's mm-hmm. the easiest observation you could possibly make about these guys. But but it's it's certainly uh, the first thing you have to talk about as well. I think for sure. I mean, the, it, again, that there's such a satisfying musicality to the dialogue and colorful use of profanity is something they have in common. Just interesting rhythms. Uh, sometimes in Mammoth's case, clipped. But McDonald will offer some uh, nice monologues here, here and there that are very uh, colorful. So, you know, that, that transfers over. And also you could usually see their films playing for the stage. Like you, could, you wouldn't have to tweak them mm-hmm. all that much in order to make them into stage plays. But I will say, like in the case of State and Maine, at the very least, Mamet is thinking of visual solutions or visual ways he can put get information across as i talked about with the with the big old mill reveal that's such a visual joke and such a cinematic joke to have that script pressed against the window and the camera observing that that's not in the dialogue that's a visual moment but i also would also say they're neither mcdonough nor mammoth are overly concerned with that aspect of I don't know. McDonough gets more visually ambitious, Mm -hmm. I think, with every film, too. You had that long shot of Caleb Landry Jones getting thrown out the window, which was, I believe, is from the police station through the door up the stairs, Mm -hmm. you know, and then back down the stairs. And just, you know, the way he sets up her house overlooking the three billboards and the redness of the billboards against the black. I I think there's a concern for that in in this film as well. I, I guess the other thing that you point to is like, I don't think this has more to do with these particular creators versus coming from stage to screen, but I I think they are both also concerned with power dynamics and who wants what in each scene. I think that is is kind of an underlying energy to McDonough as well as Mammoth. I I agree with you that Three Billboards... And this is more about directing than screenwriting, but I think there is a, a lot of like visual interest in that film. That, for what it's worth, I think could very easily be translated to a stage play. Like I'm, I'm thinking of something like one of my favorite scenes uh, visually, which is when the three billboards are on fire and Mildred is running from billboard to billboard trying to put them out and just the way that's captured I think is really beautiful but it's something that could be done with you know just lighting on on stage you know it's more about the emotion of that moment than the spectacle of it which I associate with you know theatrical writing a little more than I associate it with film yeah there's just something to me about the story dynamics which I'm I'm having a hard time pinning down honestly but it just it feels to me like all of their films tend to have maybe Seven Psychopaths kind of feels like the outlier. It feels like McDonough trying to get bigger and broader and more cinematic and specifically kind of by aping Tarantino. And I, I think it's the weakest of his three films. Uh, but I it's think a lot it's, of fun, though. The movie. I, th- I think it was pretty fun. Yeah, uh, it, it's fun, but like, I, here's the thing: In Bruges knocked me down. I mm-hmm. I really love that movie, and this one just has so many strengths and so much going for it. And I find Seven Psychopaths. It was fun, but it was it. I found it kind of forgettable. But they all have a tendency to revolve around the reveals coming in dialogue, the reveals, mm. the big reveals of the story coming in a revelation that somebody comes up with. 
And I think that's sort of a mechanic of the stage where people's emotions have to bring across the big moments more so than there being like a big set piece where something happens and, and the turning point of the story is is action. Because the turning point in Three Billboards isn't the billboards burning. It's what she does and what she what she says about it afterwards and how she relates to people afterwards. This is very specific to state and Maine, but it, it is interesting in terms of talking about playwrights turned screenwriters, the extent to which he inserts a playwright turned screenwriter into <laughs> into this film specifically and sort of explores his um, ambivalence about that transition. I don't know to what extent we want to look at Joe as a mammoth avatar, but you can't ignore the connection there. So I just want to bring up the fact this is in the the IMDb trivia. Somebody looked really closely at the brief flash that you get of the back of his book, mm-hmm. the back of his play with that much younger Philip Seymour Hoffman on it. So this is the summary of the play. Daniel Dan, a young electrician traveling in North Dakota, has his shoes shined by a veteran of World War II, also named Daniel Dan. (laughs) The two strike up a quick friendship and decide that fate has brought them together. Tragically, Daniel, the veteran, is electrocuted when Daniel, the electrician, asks him to be his helper on a small residential rewiring. (laughs) The guilt that Daniel feels over his mistake haunts him for the rest of his life. Adding insult to injury, the rewiring customer never made his final payment due to financial difficulties totally unrelated. not a play summary (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's that's the summary of anguish sure 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 and i mean there's there's a hilarious pretension to that Mm -hmm. that says to me that mamet isn't necessarily saying you know that there's some kind of great integrity to playwriting that this playwright has is squandering in the movies it seems to me that he's kind of a pretentious awkward dude who's carrying his pretentiousness and awkwardness through whatever profession he's in and it's such a that plot is described as such an artificial conceit god i love it i I, i'm glad that he took the time to write what would be actually an unrealistic back cover (laughs) summary but that's cool as far another thing though about direction i do think though that again there's a lot of examples of mamet relying on the tools of filmmaking to tell the story beyond what is written and what is said you know uh, you know in some of its foreground background action like my beloved potholes (laughs) um and then you know the scene with the fake deposition and the way that's Revealed again, again visually. You know, there, Which it's, is an it's, interesting it's just, thing yeah. because the reveal comes when he walks into the room and and sees the detritus and sees the the shape of the thing mm-hmm. and how it's changed. But the real reveal is when he talks to Rebecca Pigeon and she tells him why. Yeah, yeah, the train station. The emotional reveal comes when she explains why she did it. Yeah. Well, another thing that uh, these films have in common that we we kind of foregrounded it and then didn't really talk about it in State and Maine is the small town setting. In State and Maine, we keep getting this, like the the Hollywood types kind of stand back and, and stare with wonder at the small town. And the, as I said before, Norman Rockwell-like hokiness and yet sort of innocence of it, it's about purity. <laughs> uh, I'm curious what you guys think of this, how the small towns are portrayed in both of these movies, whether any of this rings true or to what degree it feels like that thing where Hollywood types look at everything between the coasts as flyover country where things are quaint and weird. I think State and Maine is having fun with that idea of the outsider view of the small town and kind of subverts the cliches of 
that setting and i'm thinking like how the the doctor character who's like kind of portrayed as this sweet old doctor for most of the film and then gets this like really weird speech at the end that kind of like adds a weird undercurrent to that character that i that's like the most specific the example one where he talks about how he's he's supposed to hold people's hands when they die or is that a the, different one yeah or like the, the thing about the bow tie yeah he's oh, also talking about how is great. yeah <laughs> the straight tie is meant to uh point down or to emphasize the genitalia <laughs> yeah but like, like he's initially presented as sort of this wise uh, homie he's homie. like yeah, yeah he's a, a, homie homie. He's a town doctor. he's yeah. a town doctor yeah exactly and then at the end he's just revealed to be like something much stranger and more specific that you know we don't really get a full handle on because we were so caught up in that cliche that we just sort of accepted from the beginning. And someone actually... who's, who's seen it all, too. I mean, this is a character who's, who's who's seen more vice than probably you would think a small-town doctor would say. There's mm. also something just very David Lynchian about that, about mm. the, the small town with the caricatures, the stereotypes, uh, and then you scratch the surface of that stereotype and you find something really strange. The darker side of that, though, is what we get in uh, Three Billboards, mm-hmm. which is that sense. I mean, it kind of fascinates me throughout the the film, that sense that everybody knows everybody's business and everybody feels like it's their business to have an opinion. It can't just be about this woman who lost her daughter and her vendetta against the cops. Like, everybody has to weigh in. Like the dentist. Like the dentist. Who, the lady with not only weighs in, but like weighs in in a really inappropriate way at a really inappropriate time. Yeah. Oh man, his crappy police notes are so great. <laughs> the lady with the funny eye. Oh, and the wow. fat dentist. The fat, yeah, the fat dentist. One thing we didn't really dig into earlier about three billboards, which ties into both the small town aspect of it. And this is a small town in Missouri, by the way, which is uh, reminding me a little bit of Ferguson um, when you're talking about the mm-hmm. brutality and racism of the Sam Rockwell character. How do you feel about that particular redemption arc? Because that does seem to be a pretty popular bone of contention that people have with the film. I mean, are we comfortable with Sam Rockwell's character being redeemed in any sense in this film? It's complicated. Yeah. I mean, I'm much happier with him making some kind of effort than mm-hmm. I am with a film that lets him be complacent. One of the things that makes this film interesting is the way it it takes its failed institutions and humanizes them, starting with Willoughby. And then when Willoughby is gone, moving on to Rockwell's character, there's that sense of, you know, like Willoughby before him, he has to have a reason for being as terrible as he is. And if he can't justify it, then he has to stop being so terrible. I mean, I think that it's well done the way his attempt to redeem himself is kind of lazy and sloppy and yeah. not by the book and violent and messy. I mean, just in a and lot self-serving. of ways. Yes. You know, like the essence of that letter is if you want to be a detective, you're going to have to stop being a racist. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I appreciate it. I like it that this character exists and, and has the arc that he does. But it's, it's just an interesting contrast between what we hope for and want from drama, which is which is nuance and in, in the possibility of people improving themselves in some respect, and then our just attitude more generally toward police departments and institutional racism and, and brutality and corruption and this sort of thing, which is, of course, necessarily much harsher and darker view of what a police station like this might be like. I think it's another glimmer of hope, too, that whatever redemption he has does not involve 
becoming a cop again. I don't think once Clark Peter's character comes in, there's yeah. a place for that character in, mm-hmm. on the police force. So it's going to have to be found outside that institution. The odds that things could change under Abercrombie, as his character's name, mm-hmm. in a way they couldn't even under Willoughby, who is decent-ish, uh, I guess we, it's a good uh, label to put on him, is at least another a little bit, like I said, a little note of optimism. Yeah, it's interesting to me, I guess in the same way that like State and Maine, so much of State and Maine revolves around everyone's willingness to cover up Alec Baldwin's crimes because they need him for the movie. Here, Willoughby is presented as like, to some degree, an authentically nice guy who appears to care about his town and about the law. But he's also enabling some unbelievably bad behavior Mm -hmm. and he like he may think that rockwell has something in him that can eventually be redeemed he's not really working that hard on making it happen before his death and he's allowing this guy who apparently tortures black people and in a totally non-racist egalitarian willing to torture anybody kind of way there's there's a lot of attempts to make his weird violent racist laziness complicated but in the end, you know, he's a he's a terrible person in a job that he's not suited for. And the guy that we're supposed to sympathize with is letting it happen. Yeah. I guess just to wrap up, both of these are stories. I, we, we kind of mushed all of the connections together here. But some of the ones that we wanted to get into were second chances and redemption arcs and crime and punishment and cover ups and culpability. And we kind of covered all of those without necessarily calling them out. <laughs> but one of the ones I, wanted, I do want to call out is that both of these films are expressly ensemble stories with big sprawling casts with a lot of very famous names and very small roles who stands out for you in all of this well i mean for one it's really wonderful for both films in that just up and down the ensemble all the characters are so satisfying and all the performances are Mm -hmm. are interesting um you know we mentioned just before i mean clark peters just showing up and what a what a bonus right i mean Mm -hmm. like suddenly clark peters is the movie you know, we know him from the wire, and he's going to come and straighten things out, and it creates a completely different dynamic at the station. You get some wonderful comic and dramatic tension between between him and Sam Rockwell, and then and it's just this uh, wonderful surprise to have uh, a great actor just sort of turn up, which is what he actually does in The Deuce as well. And I think about it, if you yeah. if you watch The Deuce, he, he kind of turns up late in The Deuce and it's like, yes, Clark Peters. I mean, this is the second movie in a row now that we've discussed. It has a really good Lucas Hedges performance mm-hmm. in it. It's a really good year for him, as it is for Caleb Landry Jones, who plays Red, who is a character I really liked in Three Billboards. And I really loved that performance. And while we're just talking about sort of like minor roles, I mean, Peter Dinklage is always, to me, a welcome presence on screen. His character just has the the same problem as Julia Stiles' character in Saint Maine, where they just kind of like disappear once their narrative function has been fulfilled, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't really get a conclusion. But, you know, he just has that sort of natural wounded quality that, you know, I think matches with the, the character really well. Yeah, Peter Dinklage is a, a call-out character for me in Three Billboards. I, I also saw this at TIFF and saw uh, Three Christs at the same time. Not at the exact same time. Which one? <laughs> what one? What was the one? Uh, John Avnett's, uh Three Christs, where Dinklage plays one of three schizophrenic men who believe they're Jesus. And, <laughs> I miss this completely. <laughs> I'm really curious to see whether it gets any kind of release. Okay. It's, it's a pretty flawed film mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, especially since it... It's kind of more interested in Richard Gere as the 
the guy treating these three people by shoving them together to see what happens uh, than it is in necessarily in them. But Peter Dinklage is a standout mm. there, and he's he's a standout here, and he, he just he specializes in these put upon characters that have a soulfulness to them that seems more noble than just anybody else around them. It's what he plays on Game of Thrones. It's what he plays on uh, Station Agent. It's, it's what he plays in a lot of his films. And he does it really well. And here, you know, you sort of understand why Frances McDormand charging through her angry, angry life looking for revenge is not interested in a new romance with a guy who's kind of following her around getting her puppy dog eyes. But, eh, I mean, the two of them together, like, you also kind of understand why he cares and why he's chasing her. And they're a really interesting, awkward couple, I think. I think the Under the Radar MVP for me for Three Billboards is an actress named uh, Sandy Martin, who has been around forever, has a long list of credits. She's been acting since she was 15 years old, probably best known, I guess, for being the grandmother in Napoleon Dynamite, but she plays Mama Dixon, um, Sam Rockwell's (laughs) character's mother. And if you told me they found this woman just like (laughs) chain smoking outside of a general store, I would believe you. You know, in that same sort of way, going back to state and Maine, Charles Durning Mm -hmm. is as always mm-hmm. a national treasure the next thing I was going to say actually Charles Durney <laughs> is a standout for me in State and he's a little wonderful in I that mean, movie he just he also goes back to that kind of like officious small town politician role it feels like rather a lot because he's he's so good at it he's so natural at it yeah, oh brother we're out there being one that comes to mind right? I was also thinking of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas yeah yeah he's good and his wife played by Patty Lupone who right. you know just not necessarily have that many opportunities to show how great she is, but makes the most of the opportunities she does get. How, how could Patty Lupone play someone who's short-tempered? <laughs> her brittleness in that role, her like her brittle, brittle smile is one of the best things. Yeah, when she, someone tries to eat soup, she just <laughs> do, do not. <laughs> And we also probably, I mean, while we're talking Mammoth, we've kind of got to have to give a shout out to Ricky Jay, who is mm-hmm. a uh, Mammoth favorite and who has a very small role here. But uh, <laughs> I don't know, just following Julia Stiles around yelling, hey, oh, you said you were doing homework. <laughs> she said she was studying. I don't know. He's yeah. that fellow is a delight. Yeah, you always you always look for him in Mammoth's films. He's wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, these are some really good movies with some really good casts, apart from uh, Keith hating one of them. <laughs> I don't hate it. it. It's a movie I, I, you know, I like in theory. Just you explain all these things that that it does. You know, I admire elements to it. I just don't enjoy watching it. So, I mean, I can certainly sympathize with that feeling of liking a whole bunch of parts of the movie and not necessarily liking the movie. But there's some really good parts here. Well, State in Maine is available for rent through various streaming services, and it's on DVD through Amazon for less than the price of actually renting it online. I got to choose between the widescreen and the full screen version of the films. Well, with the DVD, you get that commentary and you get to hear uh, William H. Macy talking about how incredibly hard directing is. Three Billboards is currently in theaters and hopefully we'll be there for a little while. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, kick us off. 
Well, I'd like to recommend two documentaries that do extraordinary things with existing footage. Uh, it's usually a disadvantage for filmmakers to have to rely heavily on archival material because there's not a whole lot they can do other than patch it together with a few talking heads. But Brett Morgan's Jane and Christmas Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated appearance by Tony Clifton, uh, <laughs> are really dynamic and exciting films. Uh, Jane is assembled from over 100 hours of footage in uh, Tanzania in the 1960s, which is where Jane Goodall lived uh, with the chimpanzees and completely upended our understanding of how they live. To my mind, Morgan is the best at this sort of thing. He directed my favorite ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called uh, June 17th, 1994, Mm -hmm. which is nothing but an hour-long montage of an incredible day in sports that happened to coincide with the day that OJ took off in his white Bronco. Mm -hmm. He also directed, more recently, Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, which made profoundly emotional connections between home movie footage of Cobain and his family and uh, Cobain's music. Uh, Jane has that same emotional quality. You know, Goodall is uh, such an inspiring, intrepid figure, and, and Morgan has threaded her observations and footage into the sweeping, moving, 90-minute montage set to an original Philip Glass score. And it's just all, it just feels like cinema. It's not, doesn't feel like a stodgy documentary that's just kind of like patching together a lot of old clips. It's a suite, you know, it's like, it's, it's musical, it's wonderful. Jim and Andy is about the making of the Andy Kaufman biopic Man on the Moon. Uh, It draws from all this documentary footage that was shelved by the studio at the time uh, because they were concerned that people would come away with a very bad impression of the star, Jim Carrey, who decided he was going to be Andy Kaufman and and Tony Clifton answer not answer to the to the name Jim at all. Like he was completely immersed in the role. And you could see at times that, that people are irritated by this because, you know, Coffin and especially Tony Clifton are provocative figures and people who are out of line a lot of the time. But there's also kind of a through line there that I won't reveal um, uh, with the way that the, the cast and crew ultimately processed Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman. But, uh, you know, the film only has one talking head, and that's Jim Carrey in a big uh, beard. And what's fascinating about it is how much Carrey's own personal dissatisfaction and how much he uses, you know, comedy and acting as a tool for understanding and transcending his own sadness. I mean, this is ultimate, the ultimate Tears of a Clown movie. <laughs> it's surprisingly multi layered and complex, and it's, just, it's about a whole lot more than method acting. It's on Netflix, so you can watch it right now. Quite easily. Jane is in theaters, uh, trickling its way out. And I think it's a National Geographic production, so it might find its way on TV as well. But I I think both of them are really remarkable cinematic experiences, despite the fact that they're composed mostly of existing footage. I ask this in all humble honesty with, with like seriously seeking an answer. But if I find Jim Carrey as irritating as hell, will I be able to tolerate this documentary? Will it reveal to Do him? Do you always find it like like Eternal Sunshine or no, I mean, Truman Eternal Show Sunshine. or any of that stuff? Eternal Sunshine. Well, actually, I find him incredibly irritating in Truman Show, mm. and it, to me, it's that's that's a fly in the ointment of a fantastic <sighs> film. No, I think you would still find it interesting. This is him being very introspective. The way he talks about his performances is just he becomes the thing that he's doing. It's very intuitive and um, spontaneous. Like his comedy routine is really just him doing whatever comes to mind a lot of the time. And he talks about 
how all these intersections between his real life and his roles it's fascinating and, and i think it's worth seeking out even if you're not a carrie fan. i'm not a huge fan i though i i do like his performances in in films like eternal sunshine and human show i think there's a lot going on here it's a lot to respond to in this movie yeah i was very curious about it i having seen the trailer i it seemed like something that seemed really interesting and possibly relatable mm-hmm. i just don't know how i feel about about ah, it won't it won't cost you a thing you have netflix <laughs> that's fair Let's check it out Genevieve, what do you have for us? I want to recommend a new animated film from Nora Twami, probably best known as one of the co-directors of The Secret of Kells. It comes from the Irish animation studio Cartoon Saloon, which released that film, Secret of Kells, as well as a similarly beautiful, similarly Irish uh, song of the sea. This one is a little different in that it adapts the best-selling Deborah Ellis novel of the same name, The Breadwinner, about a family living in a war-torn Kabul, Afghanistan during the rise of the Taliban. Uh, When the father of this family is imprisoned by the Taliban, his wife, daughters, and infant son are left helpless, unable to leave the house to go to the market for food or get water without a male escort. So the younger daughter, Parvana, poses as a young boy in order to help her family survive and to try to get her father out of prison. Um, If that description doesn't tip you off, this is pretty heavy subject matter for an animated film. To put it in perspective, if we were doing a Next Picture Show episode on this movie, I would suggest pairing it with Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, (laughs) It's not quite as devastating as that film, but it's not too far off. But it's also, in turn, heartwarming and funny and with a really wonderful protagonist. And it's just visually stunning throughout in a manner that I think really enhances the story as a film. Uh, Specifically, there's a strong motif running through this movie that centers on the power of storytelling. Parvana's dad has educated her against Taliban law in how to read and write, as well as in history, uh, which he teaches her via stories. And that thread is carried throughout the movie in this kind of long, unfolding story that Parvana tells at various points in the narrative. These storytelling sequences are presented in a different sort of animation style, which in addition to being visually compelling, sort of underlying Parvana's emotional progression throughout the narrative. And it builds to this absolutely stunning climax, followed by a very beautiful, very still coda that just sort of lets you sit with and feel everything you just experienced. For my money, this is the best animated film of the year. And yeah, there's a few I haven't seen yet, but from what I've seen, I'm very comfortable calling it that. Despicable Me 3? (laughs) You know, that's one of the ones I haven't seen yet. Screener, you have a screener. Um, yeah, sure I do. It's in limited release now and expanding the first week of December when you'll be hearing this. So you should hopefully be able to track it down at your local art house. If not, it's being distributed by G-Kids, which tends to be pretty quick about pushing stuff to home videos. So keep an eye out for it in the months leading up for the Oscars, where I would put money on this being a player in the animated feature category. Yeah, G-Kids does a really good job of getting its movies to basically to Oscar voters. And it's a rare year these days when one of its films doesn't turn up. This one seems like it's got both the social value and the, the animation value. I was a little turned off by the visuals in the trailers just because Song of the Sea and Secret of Kells are such visually beautiful movies. This seems more dialed down. Is it more visually elaborate than it appears initially? Yeah, well, via those storytelling sequences. I was mentioning the kind of real world narrative of what's happening to Parvana and her family are pretty dreary, you know? I mean, I I think those sequences are sort of starkly beautiful in their own way, but the storytelling segments feel much more of a piece with Song of the Sea in particular, just in terms of the dynamism of of the animation and the sort of unusual quality of the illustration compared to what we see in a lot of Western animation. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Tasha, what about you? 
I'm going to throw out this recommendation largely to chap Scott's ass, <laughs> but also because I really authentically enjoyed this movie a lot. The Joaquin Trier, the director of Louder Than Bombs, uh, <laughs> made this movie called Thelma, which uh, once Scott Tobias recently dissed on Twitter. Um, I saw it at uh, TIFF and enjoyed it a lot. I actually interviewed Joaquin Trier about it. And I just was really taken with kind of his take on what he's trying to do with the material. It's more or less an art house version of Carrie, where a young woman who has deeply fundamentalist, religious, oppressive parents starts evincing powers, psychic powers, for lack of a better term. And they're tied pretty heavily with her coming of age and her first stirrings of sexual feelings, which happened to be for another woman. And strange things start happening around her, and it slowly becomes clear that this is something that her parents anticipated and want to deal with. People have compared it to everything from a fairy tale to like an X-Men comic book, mutant discovering their powers story, to just like an art house coming of age metaphor. There are a lot of different ways to read it somewhere on the fairy tale to superhero story spectrum. But one way or the other, I was I was really taken both by the visuals, which, you know, Trier has not done a lot with special effects movies. He's a Norwegian director who in the past has done very dialed down, uh, small personal movies. And this represents a big visual step up for him. But also just in terms of finding different ways to create emotionally evocative images with these effects. I was really taken by this film. Um, and I was really taken by Eli Harbo, the star of the film, who I think brings across a lot of interesting emotion as she tries to navigate coming from an oppressive religious background and dealing with sexual stirrings and just dealing with the sensuality of the world around her and her first understanding of, of all of the things that that might mean. So, uh, Scott, you didn't yeah. like this movie. I, I was disappointed by it. I mean, I, I kind of talked about it being a bad example of the let the right one inification of, <laughs> of genre cinema and that it's just it felt very loaded with metaphor and and, and all of these kind of trappings that that are going to make it seem you know less like genre trash and more like something that we can puzzle over it's really overlong and, and pretentious and i found my just myself just losing interest as it went along it actually reminded me a little bit i had to look this up of the German film Requiem. Did you ever see Requiem? Mm -hmm. What about the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose? I deliberately avoided that one. Okay, well, but they're both based on the same story, which is fascinating to watch them both because Emily Rose is like this really hard-hitting American horror film that's just loaded with effects and is really tacky. And then Requiem plays the same story very much like Thelma, except much more simplified, which I liked better, which, which is about this woman who's experienced a you know she has special it's not really special powers in that she's feeling possessed but it also relates back to that heavily religious background and maybe that those stresses kind of are more explain what she's going through but i think it was david ehrlich was quoted as as saying that thelma was like ingmar bergman's carrie and i was all i could think of was like i want to see brian de palma's cries and whispers <laughs> instead you know i want to see like something with a little bit more muscle to it because i just the whole thing kind of fell a little flat for me but i, I don't want to steer too many people away i think if you're really into the vibe of the film it might get to you and i think interior is a pretty clearly talented guy that people should continue to keep up with I certainly understand what you're saying about the let the right one inification of genre, but I love let the right one in. And <laughs> yeah. this does give me some of the same vibe, but I, I find that much more of a positive thing than you do. 
I wouldn't want this kind of film to replace Brawl in Cell Block 99. No, it's never going to do that. I, but I want both of those things to mm-hmm. exist. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine with both having the, the highbrow take on genre trash and the lowbrow take on genre trash. I prefer the variety myself. Yeah. There's, always, there's some part of me that's like, what, do you think you're too good? You think you're too good to be a horror film? <laughs> <laughs> you think you're too good for this horror film, Scott Tobias? Yeah, just, you're I don't not know. too good for this horror film. No. Thelma, I recommend it. I am assuming that neither guy, one of you guys have seen it, so you can't tie break for us. I can't. I, I've enjoyed his other films quite a bit, so I am looking forward to this. Uh, Scott's the only only person that's, that's kind of taking the wind out of my sails about this one. So I'm a buzzkill. Yeah, I know. But hey, I've got, for my recommendation, I've got a genre film that's arty and muscular. It's called Sweet Virginia. It's a second film from a Canadian director named Jamie M. Dagg, and it's from a screenplay by twin brothers named Benjamin and Paul China. And it stars John Bernthal from The Punisher. You might know him from that. <laughs> uh, Walking Dead, perhaps, as a kind of a broken-down rodeo star who's running the, the Sweet Virginia Motel in Alaska and accidentally brushes up against a horrific crime committed by a drifter or or possibly a drifter. We'll find out more later, uh, played by Christopher Abbott, uh, who is kind of quietly one of the best actors working today. And this is another film that kind of cements that he plays this killer who it's almost kind of like a more realistic version of Ben Affleck's character in the accountant where he's very focused, um, possibly somewhere on the spectrum, terrible at reading social cues, but also a stone cold killer uh, who commits a murder in the first scene of the film that we only eventually figure out uh, why it happens in the first place. And, and the uh, backstabbing and crisscrosses involved. Uh, I won't spoil them here. The supporting cast includes Imogen Poots, uh, who's always good. And Rosemary DeWitt, who is often the best thing about a movie and, and, and always reliable. And she's terrific. Um, the plot is fine. The plot is good. It's the tone of the thing that really works for it. It's kind of this mournful, isolated tone. Um, one of the things that Dag did apparently was move the setting from uh, the South to Alaska. It brings a lot to the film because it, it establishes wherever they are in Alaska as a place that you go to forget your past. And the film is sort of the past finding a way to catch up with it. And the other big change is Bernthal's character was apparently written for a, a, an older man. Uh, we interviewed him. A writer named Jess Toomer interviewed him uh, for me, and he talked about this is the only time where he's playing a character that was at one point going to be played by Forrest Whitaker. It's probably the only time in his career <laughs> that was ever going to happen. But he's a terrific and It's a really nice change. It is a um, you know moody, satisfying genre film. Oh, some thematic heft to it. Uh, I would recommend it. It's in theaters now. Uh, it's also on VOD. So if you're if you don't feel like going out or you're someplace that does not playing, which is probably not most places in the states, it's uh, just a click away. Yeah, you know, there are filmmakers that are really not into that whole simultaneous theatrical release and VOD thing. But for people in the country who, I don't know, don't live in New York City, mm-hmm. it's really kind of a godsend just in terms of like being able to access films like this that sound like they're not going to play in a lot of cities, but that they're really worthwhile and that people are really going to enjoy. Especially people like me who like arty films and people <laughs> like Scott Tobias who like gritty films. Well, yeah. we, li- we all live oh. in the uh, the backwater town of, of Chicago, Illinois, and it is not playing there. No. Mm-hmm. Well, once again, Keith, uh, Keith Phipps coming along with the, the peacemaking gesture to bridge the gap between me and Scott. <laughs> I'm going to look that film up because it sounds really fascinating. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out December 12th and 14th. Keith, what are we discussing? 
For our next pairing, we're going to stay on the subject of movies about movie making, albeit in corners far removed from the prestige aspiring world of state in Maine. In the first episode, we'll revisit Tim Burton's Ed Wood, in which Johnny Depp stars as the director of what was once widely heralded as the worst film ever made, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Then we'll compare it to a film about the movie that's supplanted Plan 9 as the go-to example of a so-bad-it's-good film, The Disaster Artist, starring and directed by James Franco, who plays Tommy Wiseau, the inscrutable auteur behind The Room. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of State and Maine, Three Billboards, and anything else film-related. We want to know what you think about all those matzos. (laughs) <laughs> we also want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Sending us feedback letters is the fastest way to earn an associate producer credit on our show. <laughs> a full list of associate producers is forthcoming as soon as we hire a new associate producer to help compile that list. <laughs> Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my writing in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR, Vulture. Uh, I just had a big piece about Godless, the TV show Godless and Rolling Stone, and I'm also the editor of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Genevieve? Uh, you can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm editorial director of film and television, and on Twitter at kfips3000. Tasha? You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me at The Verge, where I write about film, and I am the film and TV editor over there. You can occasionally find me writing about books on NPR Books. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider subscribing. Apple Podcast subscriptions may not be important to you, but they're an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Tell a friend. Thanks to Dan the Man Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Go you Huskies! Go you Huskies!